my guest, Dr. Rosa Isaiah. Dr. Isaiah has served students in her community for over 28 years. Currently, she serves as the Director of Elementary Education and Equity and Access in her school district. Dr. Isaiah is passionate about equity and social justice, multilingual education, leadership, and closing the opportunity gap for historically underserved students. Dr. Isaiah's experience as an immigrant, English learner, and a child in poverty add to her passion for her work. Dr. Isaiah is founder of Hashtag We Lead Ed Twitter Chat and the We Lead Ed BAM Radio Radio Podcast focused on ed leadership and social justice. Dr. Isaiah has co-authored five books on the whole child, equity, leadership, and the power of relationships, including Beyond Conversations About Race, which was published in 2021. She contributes her voice to blogs, podcasts, and books on social justice, diversity, equity, access, and women in leadership. So Rosa, welcome to A Conversation with Brian. I'm so happy to be here, Brian. Um, Finally, after all this time, we get to connect in person. I'm delighted. Yeah, it is funny nowadays. And I I heard your conversation with Tom uh, Schimmer and and I've heard conversations with other people and they they talk about how they seem to know each other through uh, social media and through connecting through email, but they've never met in person. So this is our first time actually really meeting in person. And I feel like I've known you for like my entire life. Um, Isn't that something, there is so much power in being a connected educator. Yeah. It has literally changed my professional trajectory. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's magical. Yeah. Rosa, at the beginning of each one of my shows, I asked for my guests to talk about a little bit about their professional story, their personal journey, just so my audience can get to know Rosa Perez Isaiah. So who are you? Oh, gosh. How much time do we have? (laughs) (laughs) As much time as you want. Um, This is my 28th year in uh, education, and it it went by so quickly. Um, Brian, you know what that feels like, right? so in those 28 years, I've done a, a little bit of everything. I've been a classroom instructional aide. I've been um, a specialist, a classroom teacher, a bilingual resource teacher. Um, I have been an assistant principal. And uh, the best, the hardest job I've ever loved is that of a, a principal. And I was a principal for seven years. Yeah. And um, during that principalship, lucky for me, I learned of Anthony Muhammad's book, Transforming School Culture. What a wonderful My book. first year as a principal, and it changed everything I did. It, it just, I, I miss it. I miss um, Smith Elementary. We had um, a lot of success mm-hmm. as a learning community and um, really focused on that foundational piece. So um, it was a tough job, an amazing and rewarding job. Um, Currently, I am director of 
16 elementary schools in Norwalk La Mirada in California and equity and access. And if you know me, you know how passionate I am about uh, making changes, good changes for students, especially underserved communities. Yeah, well, you know, you talked a little bit about your your professional journey. Talk to us about your your personal story because there is a story behind the story, right? Yes, it's what makes us who we are and, yeah. and why we do what we do. Um, I came to this country when I was four. I was born in Mexico, and I'm an English learner. Um, my my parents, um, like many other um, immigrant. Uh, parents um, wanted something different, something better. Um, They grew up in poverty. And Mm -hmm. so they left everything they knew. Um, They are grade school educated and and they, they wanted us to have something, um, something different and and a a strong uh, education. So um, as an English learner, gosh, that was such a challenge uh, growing up in poverty um, experiencing trauma and being inspired by teachers and along my journey, yeah. um, teachers who uh, really impacted me so much that um, they got me to really have faith in who I was and to be proud of, of my language and my race and my culture and inspired me to want to do that for other people. Yeah. And um, I, uh, you know, worked so hard. Uh, getting my bachelor's degree took me almost seven years because I was, I moved out of my house. There were 10 of us, I couldn't study. So I moved in with a, my friend who was 16 at the time. Wow. And I was working two jobs and going to college in the evening. And I just remember it being hard, but just like stopping was not an option. It was just like, this is what I'm going to do, right? I'm going to work every day and work really hard. And um, once I finished, uh, my passion was always to work with kids. So I I did that and fell in love with with learning and um, couldn't stop. So I got my doctorate in educational leadership for social justice about seven years ago. Your story is so amazing. And one of the things, or, or two things I heard um, in what you were just saying, one is this, that the, 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 the thing that, or, or the fact that you, you weren't going to stop, that that was not an option. And you know how, how influential were your parents in terms of that work ethic or people around you in terms of that work ethic? Because that, that's really important in terms of you know, being successful. It's not always a, the quote, um, cognitive side, it's the behavioral, the emotional side, the, the perseverance, the growth mindset that I'm, I'm just going to keep going until I'm successful. You know, it's such an interesting story. And, and I told myself, I, I do some research at some point around this. There are eight of us and I'm the only college graduate. Mm-hmm. I'm the oldest daughter. And I remember, um, well, my mom is sixth grade educated. My dad is third grade educated. And they had different perceptions about what I would do. My dad felt like, uh, you know, the natural thing is, you know, you're going to get married mm-hmm. and have kids. Right. And do you really want to go to school? And 
Um, and, and of course he supported me, um, but in his logic and experience, that's just kind of what happened in our neighborhood. Sure. Um, my mom, on the other hand, was like, don't end up like me. You need to be an independent person. You yeah. need to be a strong woman. You need to go to school. You can do it. Get Good your education. Yeah. Um, and, and they supported me the best way they could. They yeah. were amazing. And part of that support was understanding that at 18, I had to move out. Right. I was not married. I didn't, you know, and, and that right. was kind of like, what do you mean you're moving out? But they understood that it was so hard for me to focus and have the space and time to be able to, to work and go to school. Yeah. So um, there is a, it, it is bittersweet. I do feel some guilt and I, I think a first generation um, graduates can probably relate to that a little yeah. bit because sometimes along the journey, I, I would get frustrated. Yeah. We didn't have the social capital to navigate. I was going to say, did it feel a bit lonely? Like you're on an island? It just felt like, I remember my my counselor in, in 12th grade, she kept pushing me to apply. I, I did well in school and she said, you can get in anywhere, Rosa, just apply. And I, mm-hmm. I was undocumented most of my, uh, middle school years mm-hmm. and early into high school that I didn't think that was even a possibility. And, and I didn't know anyone who had graduated from college or gone to college. And, and I remember my assistant principal, who was my teacher in leadership. And one day she shared her story with me and it sounded just like my story. Wow. And I remember wow. it clicking as a senior and thinking, well, maybe I can go to college. Maybe yeah. I can do it. People need and, to see it, right? You need to see somebody who looks yes. like you from your culture, has your frame of reference to be able to think, oh, I can do this. Representation mattered. Yeah. And I didn't realize that's what was happening. And so I applied to the two closest universities um, near me and got into both. And then I figured, okay, I don't have transportation. Let me look at the bus routes. And I ended up going with the school that had a bus route that I could easily get to and back. Um, But it was that teacher at at that point as a senior when I realized, wow, that's amazing. Do that. I can do it. You know, the other thing I heard is the word trauma. You know, can you talk a little bit about that? Um, if you feel comfortable sharing in terms of what that felt like as um, an English learner and somebody new to the country and somebody who was experiencing things that maybe um, could have potentially turned you the wrong way. Yeah, I, um, I grew up in the housing projects, um, a lot of poverty, a lot of mm-hmm. crime. Um, but I, I remember thinking when I was about eight, I don't want to grow up like this. Yeah. Just afraid, always something happening. Um, and, you know, my parents, they ended up getting a divorce, but going through that journey, sure. um, uh, domestic violence, um, those kinds of things, yeah. um, you know, family uh, in jail. Um, I didn't know that's what I was experiencing. I didn't know those were adverse childhood experiences. I just knew that I I didn't like it. And and I, and school really became that safe 
comfortable place that I wanted to be in. Um, and, and now as an adult, and of course, having been a teacher and a principal, sometimes I think, my goodness, how did we survive that, yeah. that process? My parents are, are wonderful people and they did the best they could. Sure. You know, one of the things, I, mean, I, I just kind of think about your story and although it was challenging and you had trauma and there are a lot of things that went on, you are now a gift to so many people. Your story is a gift because what you're saying is, I did it. And so you can figure out how to do this and I can help you. I can help you kid, I can help you adults. And I, and I guess I just wanna kind of segue into, you know, as an ed leader, you know, what do you think is the most, most important, you know, factor of, of being an educational leader? Because there are a lot of things that you have to juggle now at the, the central office level, but in terms of, you know, looking at kid by kid, each kid in the eye and saying, you can be successful, you are gifted. Each one of you is, has a strength and we see something in you. And so how can you help as an ed leader, those teachers, those educators, really make sure that they see each kid? Everything we do is about relationships. Um, I, I'm really focused on equity work and social justice work. And it's, it's just the lens that I use for everything I do. Um, and, and coming into this role at the director level, I, I thought for a minute, how am I going to impact kids? Yeah. And it's the same question I asked myself when I became a principal. Yeah. How am I going to impact kids when yeah. I'm not with children every single day? Um, because that work is so important. And I realize my impact, my goodness, is even probably bigger in different ways than it was before, because I have influence over program. I have influence over funding. I have influence um, focusing on professional development. I have influence on parent engagement at the district level and how we reach out to our communities and families. And everything I do is through that lens of equity. Yeah. And so I realize hiring people, sure. um, it, it is so important. Um, but let me think back to the question that you asked me. I can go off on a no, it's, it's important. Uh, One of the things I just, again, said, you, you have so many balls in the air and you're juggling so many things. And you know what's most important as an ed leader, and what you're saying is everything is viewed through. Is this going to help kids? Yes. Are they going to be successful? Is this practice, policy, program, procedure? Is it foremost going to be successful for kids, not the comfort level of the adults? And as Ken Williams says, we want to take care of our teachers, but kids are first. Amen. Amen. Everything I do and, and what I share with my team, my ed services team, is my guiding question. And the question that I ask is, how is this good for kids? Yeah. yeah. And, and if we can't answer that in a positive way, if we can't measure that, if we can't share that, then we shouldn't do it. Yeah. Of course, especially this week is Teacher Appreciation Week. Yeah. We love and appreciate our teachers. Um, 
it has to be ultimately about student achievement and student success, right? Yep. Our, our staff is an important part of that. And we work on culture because we know that when teachers are good, kids are going to be good. Yeah. Um, yeah. Ultimately, that's my guiding question. How is this good for kids? Yeah. And, no. and everything I do is through that lens. That lens, yeah. One of the things that I have um, really just been listening a lot lately um, is teachers um, stress, teachers' trauma through this pandemic. And so how do we help teachers? Because we can't help kids if the teachers aren't, aren't well, aren't healthy. And you just said something about adverse childhood experiences. We're still starting to have adverse adult experiences and teachers are having trauma. And, and so how do, we, how do we mitigate the impact of this pandemic in terms of learning for this, the students, but we got to make sure that the, the teachers continue to learn collectively in order for them to help kids. And I, I think, you know, some of us are talking about um, this pandemic fatigue and that we're just drained. And so, you know, what do we do? Gosh, been there, done that. Um, <laughs> I started a chat about six years ago, We Lead Ed, and I had to step away from that during this pandemic. Yeah. because I, I I was just drained, exhausted. Sure. want to talk about anything. I just, we were in survival mode. Right. I, I actually wrote a short piece on crisis leadership and, and the 10 most important things that, that I really learned through this crisis. And number one and number 10 are people first. Yeah. People first. Yeah. And it dawned on me, I mean, literally like a few weeks ago, the best self-care is a healthy culture. Yeah. yeah. The best self-care in any organization, whether it's a school or a, a business, um, it is a healthy culture because how can we possibly um, feel good when we're in a toxic environment? Yeah and an unhealthy environment. And the kind of tired that I think a lot of educators are experiencing now goes beyond the weekend of a weekend of self-care. Right, yeah. And, and for leaders, I, I think for us, of course, it's important for us to care for self. But when we look at our organization, the best thing we can do is work together to create a place where people are feeling safe, supported, yeah. comfortable, and appreciated. Because the work is hard and will always be hard. Yeah. And you know, you've worked on a team where we know it's hard, but the fact that we're working together to get this done, we'll do anything together. Yeah, and I, that, that's the, the, the operative word, together. You know, yes. you know collaborative, uh, collective, um, team, if, if we work in a way that allows for um, us to separate and to say these are your kids or and my kids, then we're going to be we're going to be struggling. But if we can say these are all of our kids and we can take collective responsibility for each and every child, and we're using the collective wisdom of each person on the team, then we can do this. But and, and that's about healthy culture. Uh, uh, an unhealthy culture or toxic culture is about, you know, this is, about, it's, it's all about me or, or you're saying I, 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 or, and, and we don't create the conditions for teachers to work and learn together. 
Oh. Yes, and, I, and I'm also cautious about burnout. I was just reading a report and I, I don't remember the name of it, um, but actually some feedback from educators and it wasn't all doom and gloom. Yeah. Because, you know, you're in schools, you're, you work with schools and people are working and people are, yeah. are, are happy and supporting their students. Um, and it has been rough. It, it has been a couple of, we've had a couple of years of loss, but all is not lost. Yeah, yeah. And um, our, our, I, I, I was talking with a friend and shared the students that left us and the staff that left us on March 13, 2020 are certainly not the people that we got back. Right. And so we have to remember that. And, and we see it, especially in the primary grades, our students who left when they were in kinder are now back as second graders yeah. and have missed this block of social activity, interactions, yeah. problem solving, et cetera. So yes, I, I, I'm not naive. I know that, that it's been hard. We still have teachers who are working their tails off and yeah. are working collaboratively and love this work. Yeah. And, and again, I think we have much to celebrate. And I think it's, um, I heard you say something on Tom Schimmer's podcast. You said you're very strategic. And I think we have to be very strategic and purposeful in our celebration of each other and what we're doing on a daily basis because it is hard work. And celebration is like fuel to our tank, right? And if we celebrate, we're putting fuel in our tank so we can keep going. If we don't celebrate and recognize the accomplishments, the achievements that are happening, then we're gonna run on empty. We're gonna run on empty. Yeah, and as educators, we're, we're not that intentional about it. Yeah. Um, but you know, part of that culture is that celebration. Yep. Um, we don't um, toot our own horn. We don't, we're so busy do, doing the work yeah. that, that we don't often pause to say, wow, look at what we've done. And I encourage everyone to be intentional. Um, about those opportunities to, for celebration and acknowledgement, because it is fuel to the soul. It, it fuels, um, gives us that energy to continue to do those good things. Yeah. Hey, let's turn to your book. Yes. It's so exciting. Beyond conversations about race. This is awesome. And so uh, I'm going to read something from the back jacket, um, an endorsement, and then we're just going to get into your book a little bit. And so yeah, I, wonder, I wonder who wrote an endorsement for it. I'm going to read something from your back jacket from some person um, <laughs> who's really, really thrilled about this book. And, and again, let me actually, before I do that, talk about the, the amazing people, the huge giants that were in this book. And, I mean, you're one of the giants, but there's Anthony Muhammad and Douglas Reeves and Sharaki Holly and um, who else is there? Ken Williams and and Yvette Jackson, Yvette Jackson, yes, Washington, Colorado, Doug Reeves. Yeah. Um, and so these are giants in our profession. And, and, and I love this book. But anyway, this is what this person said. The author's clarion call to move from conversation to a responsibility of action with regards to policies, programs and practices that are in every educator's control is meant to both embolden and empower educators to do what is right, not as an act of charity, 
But as Dr. Muhammad has stated, as a professional responsibility. Brian Butler wrote that. <laughs> no, this is a wonderful book. Um, and I just want to kind of get into it a little bit, Rosa, because I think it really is very powerful. And I was reading um, some of the um, your chapter that you, you wrote or some of the um, pieces that you wrote. And it the, the, the part about advocacy is really important. First of all, you know, why should ed leaders get this book and what's different about it? And then we'll get into the advocacy chapter. Okay, so I pinch myself all the time that my name is there with these people um, who I, I respect, admire, um, and, and I am a, an Anthony Muhammad believer and uh, groupie. Can I say something before you go on? I want to say something before you go on because I think you're you're so modest, and and you're on this book for a reason. And there are people who are Dr. Rosa Isaiah groupies and and believers. And so please, I I get it because I am a fan of every one of you who are on this book, and I'm a fan of Anthony's. I took that um, uh, transforming school culture everywhere I went, and it was really a guidepost for how I worked. But the same can be said about. Rosa Isaiah. Well, thank you so much. Um, I think I'm blushing, um, but I do suffer from imposter syndrome. So I'm working on that. I'm working on that. Um, but just the idea that I had a chance to, to be part of a project that advocated and that, that put this out there. Yeah. Um, the last few years were, were challenging. And, and after the murder of George Floyd, it, it really, I, I was so hopeful. I still am hopeful, but that was probably the peak um, of my of my thinking and my hope for change. Yeah. Because I thought to myself, gosh, I'm I'm seeing people who haven't talked about these issues, racism and bias and and inequity, talk about it and want to learn about it. And then people filled their backpack with this information. And now I feel we're at a point where there is a knowing doing gap right. between this learning that we experience and what we're actually doing and tremendous pushback, which sadly um, we've seen before in history. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that wasn't a surprise, but the fact that, that there is this book, that it's a guide, yeah. a guide to go beyond those conversations and I like to say, start a conversation that matters. Right. And a conversation about something that is systemic, in my opinion, and that impacts so many people in our country is a conversation worth having. Yeah. But people don't have those conversations because they're hard and they're uncomfortable. Yeah. And so this book creates opportunities, gives you questions, um, stories, vignettes that you can use with a group, with a partner to start to have those discussions about inequities that impact our communities. Yeah, one of the things I like about the book, and you, you said it, is it, it gives us tools to have those conversations. And I think at times people are so afraid to be called racist or be called, to be called insensitive. And so they, they back away from the conversations because they just don't want to go there. And, and so just like 
anybody who's engaging in a relationship building activity, they need tools. And if you don't have those tools, then you're going to use the only tools that you have. And a lot of times that's defensiveness. My tool is I'm backing off. And this is a great book that helps people. It's not, it's not about pointing blame. It's about helping us understand each other and understanding our history. And then what can we do? One of the, 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 the most powerful chapters was on advocacy. And somebody's name that I know popped up in that chapter. And, and, and you, you talked about, you know, these, these scenarios or vignettes or role plays that can help educators be more comfortable in addressing these issues. Can you want, want to, you know, uh, talk about advocacy and why that's so important? I, I think part of the work that we do, whether, whether we want to own it or not, is, is part of our responsibility is to, to advocate for changes. Yeah. Um, and our students, you know, once upon a time, I used to say, we have to be a voice for the voiceless. And I'm learning every day. Um, right. And I realized our, our students and our communities have voice and we are not creating platforms and opportunities to share voice. Okay. And so yeah. I like to say that I want to advocate for changes and I want to empower our students and communities to share their voice because yeah. they have one, right? Well, yeah. Yeah, I think I think it's important because when you don't feel like you have any power, then you sometimes become this either you become bitter or you become like this victim. You're like, I, I, I don't have you know, I, I don't have any I can't do anything about this. So empowering people saying you, you can do something about this is yeah. critical to this process. You know, in I your think, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, no. Um, I was going to say. I mean, that's just how I've lived my life and, and people have empowered me. Yeah. They have made me feel like you have something that you can share. You, you um, can contribute in this way or that way. Yeah. Since I started school as a little girl who didn't speak a word of English um, and, and shortly after met a teacher, Senora de la Peña, who said, Hablas español, yo también. You speak Spanish, so do I. And she taught me to read in my home language, which was Spanish. That's awesome. And a light bulb went on and I thought, oh, I don't have to be embarrassed. I can wow. actually learn both. So during the day I was just, you know, I was like a sponge. Yeah. Learning to read in English and after school, she was teaching me to read and write in Spanish. And so yeah. after that, I just took off. I took off because I felt so empowered that I had not just one voice, but two, and that it was okay. And that there were people like me who, who thought that was important. And, and my parents, in, in their effort to immerse us, said, learn English, speak English learn English, not, not understanding, of course, at that time, how valuable what we sure. had and brought yeah. to the schoolhouse, yeah. um, how important that was. 
I'm, I'm, I'm actually getting chills because I'm looking at your face and the, the passion that, that, that you bring and what you, what you represent it is so powerful. And, and I think, you know, when, when we talk about um, people of color in leadership positions, women in leadership positions, you got everything covered, lady. <laughs> you do. You, you are just amazing. In your in your book, though, um, in in the chapter on advocacy, you have these scenarios: um, Is it fair? One size fits all. Should I say something? Are my parents right? And I'm not going to ask you to delve into each one of those scenarios. But what I love about it is you ask for the adults after those scenarios are, are over to kind of problem solve. Why did you do that? You know, because th this is real. I've either experienced this or have been part of, of this type of scenario or, or this exact scenario with names changed. Yeah. And, and I just thought, you know, what is the best way to get people to talk about it? Yeah. Um, in a non-threatening, um, you know, lower that, that affect that, True. that this is the best way to do it. Yeah, do I it. love it. The, the attention, the attention is not on you. Yeah. The attention is on the story. The attention is on, hey, maybe I can make recommendations. It's not necessarily about me when we know yeah. it is about us, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I thought, you know, this is a this is perfect. Yeah. It's a great way to engage not just teachers, but your your parent community. Yep. Yeah. How to engage everyone in these conversations because this is what we're living. Yeah. every day and i know that a lot of my beliefs may not align with some family members sure and i've had those conversations as well yeah. Yeah. um and and that's okay i get it but we have to at least start the conversation yeah um there's a great quote in the book and i i don't know who said it but i wrote it down and i keep it here on my desk conversations about race must be learning opportunities yeah we focus on effects okay and this is my my note we focus on effects understandably um, the effects of racism um, but to get beyond understanding and into change we have to look at cause yeah right yeah. because it's so easy to get caught up in in those effects because they're powerful and they're horrible and they're right. damaging but until we get to the root of it, uh, whether it is, this is how I was raised. These are our beliefs. Yeah. I didn't think to question. Sure. You don't know what you don't know. Yeah. And in each in each person is different. I mean, and I think that's why, you know, the, the, the scenario about one size fits all, that, that pertains to everything, right? Because you can't say, I think one of the things in your, your book you, you were talking about, um, English learner and Hispanic student or Hispanic English learner, they're, they're, they could be two separate, they're two separate things. And then within that, they're individual people. And so they, they bring their individual selves to that, that schoolhouse. 
And so we need to know them. We have to truly understand everybody's cultural frame of reference, their lived experience. Yes, yes. And I, I talk about this through um, a funds of knowledge lens. And I actually have a few sessions and workshops that I've done around this. And it is, um, you know, you know, we do have a negative perspective about those things that we don't understand naturally. Yeah. And, and when we have students who are not um, your typical learner, what yeah. you would Fact, oh, a nice little package yep. uh, with a nice solid foundation of whatever fill in the blank. And let yep. me just add to that. No, how are we embracing who, who's coming into our classroom? Right. You know, that's why I said it starts with those relationships. It, yeah. it's, it's a bumper sticker, but it's the truth. Do you understand who your students are? Do you understand their lived experiences? Do you know what their families experience? All of that only helps to strengthen the connection. And then when we pull that into our teaching in a culturally responsive way, it just feels good. Yeah. That's just, where the magic happens. That's where the magic happens. And yeah. I get excited about it. Um, yeah, I can see it. Oh, I get so excited about it because it's it's amazing yeah. that that we have the power to impact the future in this way, and I don't take it lightly. and And I just want everyone to get excited about what a gift and what a great responsibility that all is. Yeah, you kind of just answered this, but you know, what are you most proud of in your work as an educator and an educational leader? Gosh, I, I am proud to, to keep that focus and attention on creating equity. Yeah. And, and for me, equity is really about giving people exactly what they need to be successful. To it's be about successful. fairness. It's about, yes, yes. And I had someone in, in another state share with me that they could not use um, that word equity anymore, that they couldn't use um, social emotional learning. Um, it, it was just heartbreaking that yeah. this is where we are. Um, not surprising, um, but regardless, we're going to continue to keep that focus. So I, I am proud of that. I'm proud of, of the fact that I continue to learn and I'm not the educator I was in 1994 with my first kindergarten class. Um, <laughs> And I, I hope not. Yes, yes. <laughs> Poor kids. I'm sorry, wherever well, you that's, are. That, we all say that, right? <laughs> yes, I did the best I could. But let me tell you, I, I just loved every minute. And, yeah. and um, I, I'm proud. I'm honored that I get to do this work. It's like, wow. And I get paid for it, too. Wow. Well, you're good at what you do. And I think that's why people are in line to, to hear and learn from you. Hey, what... um. What advice would you give to new teachers, somebody who's who is in the teacher pipe, pipeline or in a um, their, their senior year and they're applying for jobs right now? What advice would you give them coming into the profession? Well, my son is a senior in high school and he'd like to teach history. Um, he'd like to be a teacher. So the He's a senior in, in high school or college? I'm sorry, college. Oh, okay. I remember I see all these pictures. I'm like, I, I know he's older. Yes, but 
because I mean, I can't even believe that that's where we are right now. Wow. Um, yeah. We'll have another conversation later about that. <laughs> yeah. um, but I, I say, don't walk in with a, a Pollyannish kind of perspective on what teaching is. Teaching is hard work. Yeah. Teaching is so rewarding. And my advice is get to know who your students are. Yeah. If you invest in relationships and connections with your, with your students, that's going to be your saving grace. Yeah. That, that, that is huge. such an important, I mean, things fall into place, Brian, right? You know yeah. that yeah. when you build relationships and connections. Um, and, and I've discovered over time, um, some of my teachers have been afraid to talk with parents. Yeah. Some of my teachers have been afraid to have harder conversations with parents. But you know what, Rosa, in, in their teacher prep programs, they don't have a class on that. They don't have a class on how to talk, how to, talk to parents. Yeah. You know? No, they don't. They don't. And, and the value and the importance of that. Yeah. Um, and keep learning. Yeah. It's what do you say to veteran teachers now? Same thing. Yeah. It's the Remember. same thing keep learning. It's about relationships. And I have seen people um, who've been teaching for 30 years who decided to, okay, I'll try that one thing. Yeah. Just blown away by it has changed yeah. their entire experience. Right. Yeah. So we continue to learn. That's, that's the key. Yeah. Well, we're almost finished because this is going by so quickly. I do appreciate your yeah. time. This has been fantastic. I, I have this passion about changing our view of gifted education. And I have this framework where I talk about, um, you know, making gifted education the floor to every single classroom, Make, meaning that we should use the practices that, quote, gifted schools use in every single classroom. And we can scaffold appropriately as we work as a team, for example, if we are having a Socratic seminar, which is, quote, a gifted practice, then as a team, we're going to have our EL teacher at the table. We're going to have our special ed teacher at the table. We're going to have our reading specialists, our classroom teachers at the table so they can share their collective wisdom so we can scaffold and have each child be able to participate. You know, we might need to build some background knowledge. We might need to support with some behavior or language, but we want to have everybody um, be able to participate in this gifted practices or programs. And so what do you think about this idea of treating every single child as if they're gifted? Oh my gosh, you're, you're preaching to the choir here. <laughs> Absolutely believe it, love it, um, endorse it, promote it, uh, all of the above. Doesn't that just make sense to you though? I mean, we have all this evidence. We have Carol Dweck, we have Goldie Muhammad, Yvette Jackson, Carol Ann, Carol Ann um, Tomlinson, who is a very you know prominent person in gift education, she talks about teaching up, and teaching up means we're going to teach up to where the where we traditionally teach to gifted kids. All kids should have access to that. All kids. And and when you have uh, Kenneth Williams on, you you set that bar. Yep. You know, for all students. Um, the idea that that we would save some strategies for for some students and not share with others. But we do. We have created this hierarchy in schools and we create these. And, and again, this is my passion. You can hear it because we I can create. Can see it now. 
we create these these um, this apartheid-like system with giving a kid a gifted test in kindergarten, first grade, in second grade. And we know that traditionally, from my experience, it's not about the kid. It's about the kid's ex lived experience up until that point, whether they do well or not on that assessment. Amen. So we're grading the parents. We're making the parents gifted, and they get to go to a gifted program but it's not about the, 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 the kid. Every single kid is, in my opinion, gifted. I know that. I know every single kid has a strength, has a passion. Sometimes we have to help them uncover that, unlock it. That's our job. But it's our, our job to make sure that we treat them as if. And we create the conditions, the culture in our school that allows for every kid to be into uh, a, a situation where they're being treated as if they're gifted. And, and my connection to that is, is that equitable? No, it's not no. equitable. No, not not. How could we say we create equitable learning experiences when we um, pick and choose and based on um, lived experience, yep. decide whether we will provide these beautifully enriching learning opportunities for children? Yep. It's not okay. Exactly. Well, Rosa, I, I do appreciate you being on and taking the time, my friend. It was so great to finally meet you. And when I get out to California, we have to actually meet in person. Um, but you are such a voice for so many people. You are just a dynamo. And I am just honored to be able to just call you a friend, a colleague, and somebody I can rely on for to, just to learn from. And so thank you so much for coming on. And we will hopefully talk to you soon. Absolutely. It's my honor. Delighted to finally be here with you. And um, I look forward to that future encounter. We got to have coffee in Malibu. Yes. That yes. We, when I come out and visit Emily, we'll have to have coffee. <laughs> <laughs>